Today we're doing part two of five millennia of Jewish history. Uh, this is going to cover the period beginning with the death of Moshe and the nomination of Joshua as leader of the people. I'm going to go through the conquest of Israel and the interactions that the Jews are going to have with various different empires and different nations over the next thousand five hundred years or so. And it's going to end by the destruction of the second temple. So we really have a lot to cover here today. And I think one of the themes that we're going to see over this period is the fact that the greatest threat to Jewish people flourishing, to Jewish continuity, are not external threats, but the Jewish people uh, are threatening themselves. So Moshe dies, and he, of course, is the greatest leader that the world has ever seen, and he is going to be replaced by Joshua, another great leader, uh, but not quite on the same caliber. And after the death of Moshe, right away, they're on the doorstep of Israel, and they're going to begin their entrance and the conquest of the land of Israel, the land of flowing of milk and honey, and to actualize the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob many, many times throughout the Torah. They crossed the Jordan miraculously. They carried the Ark of the Covenant into the, into the Jordan River. The river split, and there's dry land for the people to walk through. And once they get into the land of Israel, they begin a seven years of miraculous conquest of the land. In the land of Israel, then called Canaan, there are seven mighty nations comprised of 31 different city-states and different kings. They're all united against this insurgent Jewish people, but the Jewish people have got on their side and they begin to carve up the resistance. The very first city is the gateway to Canaan, the city of Jericho. It has these massive fortified walls. They march around the city for seven days. They blow chauffeur. The seventh day, they march around seven times. And finally, the walls collapse and tumble, and the city of Jericho is submitted to Jewish sovereignty without a single Jewish casualty. A great disaster happens in the next battle, in the battle of the city of Ai, because there are 36 casualties. Now, for us, we're used to wars that have tremendous numbers of casualties. Uh, that doesn't sound like so much, 36 people to, to conquer a city. But for the Jewish people who have God at their side, 36 casualties is a big deal. After seven years, the majority of the land is subdued, and the 12 tribes begin the process of dividing up the country, of taking a parcel of land and appropriating it to each of the 12 tribes. There's still some small pockets of resistance. There's still a small percentage of the land that is occupied by the Canaanites, but for the most part, the land is quiet. The Jews finally return to their homeland after about 250-year absence, and they're going to remain in the land for roughly 850 years. Then they're going to be exiled to Babylon and come back and have what's called the Second Commonwealth, so the First Commonwealth, now the Second, then the Second Commonwealth, and then they're going to, the temple is going to be shredded again with the Romans, and the Jews are not going to go back to the land of Israel uh, for the most part until modern times. Now, there's some unique challenges that the Jewish people are going to have to face once Moshe passes. First of all, they're going to come into contact with foreign nations and foreign nations who have foreign ideals and have affinity to idolatry. And 
that's going to be, you know, the first time for the duration of the Torah, the Jewish people are insular. They're, they're ensconced. They're enveloped by these clouds that provide shelter for them, both physically and spiritually. They're on their own. They don't have to fend off enemies from without. Uh, now they're living in the land and they're surrounded by people who don't have the same priorities and ideals and beliefs uh, that they do, and they're going to have to contend with this new challenge. And Moshe, before he died in the book of Deuteronomy, he spends a great amount of time warning the people to be careful and be wary about sinning in the land. Because the land, we're told this several times in the Torah, it has a spiritual characteristic to it. It itself is incompatible with evil and with idolatry. Moreover, if the Jewish people or whoever lives in the land, if they do not abide by the spiritual stature of the land, then the land itself is going to vomit them out. It's going to expel them. So, for example, in chapter 4 of the book of Deuteronomy, of Devarim, Moshe tells the Jewish people, I am going to die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan. But you, you're going to cross the Jordan and you're going to settle the land, and you have to be careful. Don't forget the commitment you made to God. Don't do idolatry. Because if you do, I, I, I'm testifying here today, let heaven and earth be my witnesses, that you will surely be destroyed very quickly. You'll be banished from the land that you're going to cross the Jordan to inherit. And this is the reality of living in the land of Israel. It is a land of spiritual greatness, but it demands a commensurate spiritual people to live in it and to flourish in it and to have continuity in it. Moshe and Joshua are unique amongst Jewish leaders that they really are a, a combo leader. They're the political leader they're the diplomatic leader, they're the Torah leader, they're the religious leader, they're everything, everything wrapped into one. For the duration of the, the stay in Israel, there's going to be various leadership structures that are somewhat different. So after Joshua dies, there's going to be a series of 15 or so judges, the Shoftim. These are the leaders of the people who are going to oversee the, the first era of Jewish life in the land. And it's going to last for about three centuries. The Jewish people don't have the entirety of the land yet. Jerusalem, for example, most notably, has not yet been conquered. And there's going to be a slow re-infiltration of the enemies. Many of the enemies who were subdued by the initial conquest are going to uh, come out of the woodwork, and there's going to be a period of almost continual warfare. There's a lot of great Jewish leaders during this time, great heroes and heroines, but there's going to be a certain bleak outlook for the Jewish nation as a whole. So you have, for example, Devorah. Devorah, she's a born leader. She's a prophetess, possessing great knowledge, intelligence, and charisma. You have the great Yael. Uh, she uh, seduces a sister and she kills him. Samson, one of the great judges who is constantly battling with a Philistine, a great scholar, a great hero, a man performing legendary feats of bravery and strength. But he also had his Achilles heel. He married multiple Philistine women, and that was, of course, his undoing. He had these long flocks 
of hair, and that gave him a strength. And the Philistines, they got his wife to betray him. And she found out from him that the hair is the secret to his strength. And thus, they cut off his hair, and he was vulnerable. And they gouged out his eyes, and they imprisoned him, and they tormented him, and tortured him in front of the Philistines. And of course, there's a very famous episode at the end of his life. There's about 10,000 people packed into this palace, and Samson musters up the last vestiges of strength. He collapses the pillars, brings the house down, quite literally, and bringing many of Israel's enemies to death alongside him. Tomos nafshi imaplishtim. Let my, let me die with the Philistines. Let me take a whole bunch of them with me. And this time period, the first period of the judges, is characterized by somewhat haphazard and disorganized leadership. There's going to be wars with the neighbors, especially the Philistines. That said, there's still a miracle of effective self-governance. The law of the land is essentially the law of the Torah. And that was sufficient to ensure proper behavior for the most part. There's going to be some very famous and sad episodes of sin. There's the Pesel Micha, essentially was an image, a memorial to God, but it spiraled into becoming a shrine for idolatry. And there's the sad and tragic story of the Piletish Begiva, of the concubine of Giva, where several members of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, they ravaged a concubine and that became a rallying point, a flashpoint against that tribe. Someone takes her, her dead body, they cut it up with a bunch of pieces, they send it out to the land, and a civil war broke out the entire nation against the tribe of Benjamin that resulted in tens of thousands of death. Thus concludes the book of Judges with a very famous and haunting verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel, Ish. Hayashar be'inav yaseh. Everyone did what was right, what was appropriate in their eyes. This leadership structure of the nation is going to change by the hands of the last judge, the great Samuel. According to Jewish sources, Samuel was such a great leader that he is equal to Moshe and Aaron in stature. And he is going to unite the entire nation, all the tribes, under the leadership of one king. And this is going to mark the end of the period of the judges and beginning of the period of the kings. And the first king of Israel is someone who you would imagine, if you you could create a cookie-cutter version of a perfect king, you would end up with someone who looks like King Saul. He was a great person, and in some ways, even greater than King David, his successor. He was charismatic. He was physically gifted, extremely tall and handsome, head and shoulders above his constituents. He was charitable. He was selfless. And he was also a national hero. The tablets of the Ten Commandments were actually kidnapped by the Philistines, and he led the daring raid of the rescue of the tablets of the Ten Commandments along with the Ark. He's a war hero and a great Torah scholar. He seems like he's the complete package. But we see again and again in Jewish history that 
leaders that seem to be made in a lab for leadership don't actually pan out. To be a leader, you have to know what it's like to suffer. You have to know what it's like to be part of the downtrodden. And thus, the greatest leaders that our nation have had are ones that came from the bottom and knew what it was like to be a regular Joe or someone who wasn't always a standout. And thus, King Saul didn't really qualify. And his reign is marked with some very, very sad mistakes. First and foremost is the way he treated David. Uh, David is someone who it seems like he's going to be the replacement. King Saul makes a critical mistake and he doesn't destroy the entire nation of Amalek. And Samuel goes and says to him, you're the king. Everyone thinks you're the king. But in God's eyes, you've lost your monarchy. And Samuel looks for a replacement and he finds David. But Saul, well, Saul is still on the throne and the nation still considers him king. And thus, you have a a period where David and Saul are both operating as kings and they're butting heads. And Saul happens to have tremendous insecurity and, and envy and paranoia. He seems like he wants to go after David and kill him. So he tells him, for example, I'll let you marry my daughter Michal. Just give me a hundred foreskins of dead Philistines that you killed. And of, of course, his hope was that David would go and try to get the hundred foreskins and he'd, he himself would die and that would rid Saul of his problem. And David, of course, returns not with a hundred foreskins, but with two hundred. But eventually David has to go underground. And Saul is hunting him down. And Saul is singularly focused. And we see this a lot with kings and rulers who become paranoid. They become singularly focused on just trying to stamp out the rebellion. So, for example, the city of Nov, they supply David with food and arms when he's a fugitive. And Saul finds out, and in a fit of rage... He destroys and slays the entire city. And in the end, Saul is surrounded by the Philistines. He commits suicide. He is uh, beheaded, sadly, and he become, and David becomes the undisputed king of Israel. And David, of course, is the quintessential, the exemplar, the archetype of a great king. Like great leaders, he has very humble beginnings. His great-grandmother, Ruth, her conversion is questionable because the only reason why she's allowed to convert is because it says Amoni velo Amonis, because the uh, a textual analysis of the verse that says only a male tribe, a male convert from this nation is not allowed into the people, but not the female. He himself is someone whose own family questions his aptitude to be the king. Uh, but he's a shepherd and he tends the flock and he learns the skills to tend to the nation. Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, uh, Yeshai, the father of David, and he tells him one of your children is going to be king. And Jesse lines up all his kids, and each one of them, Samuel says, not this one, not this one, not this one. Is there any more? He said, well, there's the Jinji, there's the redhead in the backyard, but he's certainly not your guy. And Samuel says, show him to me. He says, actually, this is my guy. He pours the oil in his head 
and David becomes the anointed king of Israel. Of course, along the way, he slays the Philistine giant Goliath. He marries the king's daughter, the previous king, uh, Saul's daughter, even though that doesn't get to be consummated. And he is someone, King David is, who has a profound, intimate, personal relationship with God. Maimonides, many, many millennia later, writes that the role of the king is to be the heart of all of Israel. He is supposed to be the emotional and the spiritual force of the people to galvanize and inspire the nation. No one fits this characteristic to be the heart of the nation more than King David. He is the primary composer of the book of Psalms that demonstrate this deep emotional bond that he has with God. And since then, the Jewish people have adopted the book of Psalms as a way to try to piggyback on King David's relationship with God to try to say his prayers and invoke his words to try to deepen our own relationship with our creator. David is the king of Israel for 40 years, and he has a remarkable legacy. He is going to unite the nation. He is going to quiet the land. Uh, The last stronghold of the Canaanites, Jerusalem, he is going to initially purchase part of it, then conquer the rest of it. And the prophet is going to come and tell him, This is the land that in the book of Deuteronomy, God said there's going to be a place where it's going to be a permanent temple and a permanent spiritual epicenter of the nation. This is the land. David moves his capital from the city of Hebron to the city of Jerusalem. He himself is not allowed to build the temple because he has lots of blood on his hand. But God says, your son Solomon, he will build the temple. And David is called the Mashiach Hashem, the the Messiah of God, the Anointed One of God. Because from him onward, all legitimate kings of Israel are going to be direct descendants of King David. And indeed, the Messiah, the king of Israel that we're still awaiting, will be a direct descendant of King David via his son, Solomon. Solomon, at the age of 12, becomes king. It's not a bad bar mitzvah gift for anyone. And he too like his father before him, reigns for 40 years and dies at the age of 52. Solomon is someone who is a man of superlatives, unmatched intellect, unmatched intuition, really expands the kingdom. He builds alliances with all these other nations. And he leaves for us three remarkable books for for posterity. The Song of Songs, the Shirashirim, the Proverbs, the Book of Mishlei, and Ecclesiastes, the book of Kohelas. And this is indeed a period which is the zenith of Jewish life. The 80 years of King David and King Solomon mark the high point of Jewish life. They're united in the land of Israel. There's security, there's peace, there's hegemony, and there is the religious functions of the nations are being upheld. Indeed, things were so good, the Talmud tells us in the book of Yavamos that For this 80-year period, they stopped accepting converts. And the reason why is because things were so good for the Jewish nation that, of course, people wanted to join. And thus, there was a concern that there's going to be a bevy of converts coming to the nation that they nominally want to join the people. But the problem is, is that maybe they're not sincere in their conversion, which does demonstrate just how good things were. 
over the course of our history, for the majority of the times, we we were a a hated nation, we were a persecuted nation, we suffer, and we were the downtrodden ones. But during this 80-year period, we were on, on the peak of our powers, and everyone wanted to join. Now, after Solomon dies, things really go downhill, and they go downhill fast. Solomon's son, Rechavan, becomes his successor, and he made some very poor decisions that splinter the nation. He has the advisors that are more veteran ones, the older advisors, and he has the younger advisors. And they were faced with a problem. The problem was is that the people who lived on the periphery, people who lived all the way far north of Israel, they felt a little bit alienated from the center of power in Jerusalem. And the question was what to do about those people. So the elder advisors said to new king Rehavam, reach out to them, extend to them the olive branch, court them, woo them, bring them into your inner circle, be nice to them. That was the elder advisors. The younger advisors said, no, you got to be tough. You got to show them who's boss. You got to give them punitive taxation. And sadly, he chose to listen to the younger advisors, to the young whippersnappers. And within a very short amount of time after the death of King Solomon, there's going to be a secession, a schism. The Jews of the north, they say, we're fed up. We don't want to deal with this corrupt new king. We're out. We're going to splinter and going to have our own nation, the kingdom of Israel. From that point forward, the Jewish people are no longer united. In the south, you have the kingdom of Judah. In the north, you have the kingdom of Israel. They have their own government, and they have their own capital. And thus, only the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin remain loyal to the house of David, centered in Jerusalem. Now, this revolt, this rebellion was, thankfully, it was bloodless, but it caused a tremendous upheaval in the nation. It was led by some of the name of Yeravam ben Nevat, Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, and combined the 10 northern tribes of Israel, they actually had the vast majority of the land of the nation. However, Judea, the southern kingdom of Judea, they possessed the greatest asset of them all, Jerusalem, with the temple. And Jeroboam, he was someone who had great potential to be another great leader. God, in fact, tells him, you'll be like David. Just bring the Jews back together. But sadly, he was he was scared of losing his post and losing his monarchy. And he did everything he can to prevent the reunification of the land. And he was worried. His biggest concern was that during the holidays, there's going to be pilgrimages down to Jerusalem. And that he's worried that his constituents are going to go there and they're going to be overwhelmed with nostalgia. And they're going to say, we want to reunite with our brethren in the South. So he appointed guards along the border that prevented anyone from traveling South. And he, in fact, erected two golden calves that say, okay, you want to pray? You want, you want a temple? I'll build you a temple for the idol. And he builds these golden calves and he builds these temples for idols and really things devolve very quickly. All the subsequent monarchs after Jeroboam, they're going to follow his lead. They're going to reject belief and faith in God. They're going to embrace idolatry. 
despite the fact that great prophets like Elijah and Elisha are going to invest everything they can to bring the Jews of the northern tribes of Israel back to the fold, sadly, they're going to be lost from our nation. After 150 years of steady devolvement, the Almighty says, okay, you are no longer worthy of living in this land. And the ascendant empire of the time, the Assyrian Empire, swoops in from Iraq. They travel to the northern kingdom of Israel, and they systematically conquer the land. And they send the Jewish people packing. They scatter them throughout throughout their empire. In their place, they give us the Samaritans and those tribes of Israel, known to us as the Ten Lost tribes of Israel are lost from our nation ever since. And this is going to begin a pattern where every several hundred years, you're going to have a new ascendant empire in the world that's going to have a clash with the Jews. And the Jews are going to suffer under them all, under the Assyrians, under the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Medes, and the Greeks, and finally the Romans. Each one of these empires will try to destroy the nation in one way or the other. Now, the Assyrians, under the leadership of Sancherib, they have finished deposing and displacing the the Jews of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they begin heading south. And they're going to take on the kingdom of Judah. At the time, the Jews of Judah are led by a great king named Chistiah, or Chistiahu. In fact, the Talmud tells us that he was so righteous that God wanted to make him the final Messiah. And he was someone who was so committed to bringing Torah back to the land that the Talmud describes that they made a survey, they made a census. And they went from the tribe of Dan uh, in the north to Beersheba in the south, which is essentially comprising the entirety of the kingdom of Judah. And there wasn't a single child, not a boy, not a girl, that wasn't completely well-versed in the most complex laws of purity and impurity. And thus, we have a bifurcation. The Jews of the north descend to idolatry lost from our nation. The Jews of the south, they still have righteous teams who are bringing them back to Torah, and thus they survive. Now, in the British Museum in England, in London, there is a, uh, a cuneiform tablet uh, written in a Akkadian cuneiform known as the Sancherv Prisms, or the Sancherv's Annals. In it, we actually have a description of his attack and his plan to conquer the, the kingdom of Judah. And he writes, I have, Sancherv himself writes this, I have the king of Judah, Chistia, I have him trapped like a caged bird. All the Jews in, Ju- in Judea coalesce into the very thick walls of Jerusalem, and they are besieged. But we're told in Jewish sources that a plague engulfed the 180 or 1,000 or so soldiers of Sancherib's army, and the threat was neutralized. For the duration of the kingdom of Judah, you have a motley mix of kings. You have very righteous ones like Chistia. He himself is sandwiched between wicked ones. His father, Ahaz, his son, Menashe, were all idolaters. You have exceptional evil ones like Yehoiakim. The Talmud describes that he was someone, he was deliberate in his efforts to try to spite God. He 
tattooed himself in very uh, uncomfortable places. He deliberately kidnapped women, tortured their husbands to death in front of their eyes. He did incest with his mother and his mother-in-law just to spite God, just to be a sinner. He would purposefully wear garments of wool and linen just to violate the commandment. And he did the incredibly stupid and foolish decision to rebel against the next great empire, the empire of Babylon, led by the great king Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. He was someone, Nebuchadnezzar was someone of a man of immense courage and strength who brings the empire of Babylon and makes it a mighty one that controls the vast majority of the known world. And the Babylonian culture was one that was infamous for its great cruelty. And, and Nebuchadnezzar himself, he was someone who trained a lion to run, to ride in it on horseback. And he would play with poison. He was crazy. He was, uh, and he was, he was daring. And he, when Yehoiakim, when he launches this rebellion against Babylon, he captures this king and he orders his body to be cut up and tied to a donkey and dragged around for everyone to see. Uh, and after Yehoiakim died, there's one more king, the king Tzitkiah, who's the last king of Judah before the whole commonwealth is destroyed. Now, after the first rebellion, the Yehoiakim's rebellion, the development of Judea happens in stages. And this is an interesting point. You have the Jews living in Israel. They've been living in Israel for essentially 850 years uninterrupted. Of course, they've had their, their highs and lows, but they've been there continuously. They're not used to going into exile on a whim like we are, perhaps, or like our nation has become accustomed to over the rest of our history. And 10 years before the temple is destroyed and Judea is finally destroyed by, by Nebuchadnezzar, he begins a process of taking the best and the brightest, the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of Judea, the men of war, the greatest Torah scholars, including great prophets like Ezekiel, Mordecai, Daniel, people of wealth, people of influence, the movers and shakers. He takes them all and sends them to Babylon. And his idea was, if you undercut the leadership structure of the nation, it's very unlikely that these people will have the ability to rebel and to make war. The Talmud tells us that this is in fact a blessing in disguise. The Almighty knows that the days of the kingdom of Judah are numbered. Very soon, the entire nation is going to be led in chains to Babylon, beginning, of course, the great Jewish diaspora. What's going to be when the Jews get there? What are they going to find? So the Talmud says that this is a great blessing because 10 years before the destruction, all the leaders, everyone that you need to establish a flourishing Jewish culture, all those people are sent to Babylon. And they get there, they unpack their bags, and they begin to establish Jewish communities there in earnest. And thus, what happens 10 years later? Nebuchadnezzar goes. And he lays siege to the city again. He destroys everyone in his wake. And the leftovers of the Jews, he sends them packing to Babylon. They arrive in Babylon and they find everything that they need to begin what's going to be essentially 2,500 years of Jewish life in Babylon. But to begin and to have the Jewish infrastructure to ensure that even though the Jews have been humbled 
and they are, of course, are saddened that they're losing their sovereignty over Israel and they're being sent into exile, but at least we can be assured that the Jewish people have continuity. And this event, this destruction of Judea and destruction of the first temple, of course, is one of the saddest events in Jewish history. The temple has been around for 400 years or so, a little more than that. It was built by King Solomon, and now Nebuchadnezzar is going to systematically destroy Judea. Uh, he is going to, uh, in the early part of the summer, according to Jewish sources, it's the year 422, before the Common Era, he is going to begin the siege of Jerusalem, cut off the city from any resources, tightening the news. There's going to be tens of thousands of casualties in the siege. There's going to be famine and pestilence. And finally, there's going to be as well death by sword and fire. On the ninth day of Tammuz, the walls of the city are breached and the Babylonian army sweeps forward. After a month, they stamp out all pockets of Jewish resistance. The Babylonians herd the Jews into giant slave camps, transport them back in exile to Babylon. And at sunset, at the beginning of the ninth day of, of the month of Av, the saddest day in the Jewish calendar, the Babylonians set fire. The temple, the temple's burned and destroyed. It's a heap of rubble. The holy vessels and the coffers are looted. And of course, the Talmud trains us as Jews to look inwardly. All the way, Moshe already warned us that if we lose the spiritual merits needed to have continuity in the land, then we're going to be kicked out of it. We're not going to be able to flourish in it. Says the Talmud, why was the temple, first temple destroyed? Because the Jews descended to idolatry, to murder, and to adultery. The temples are destroyed. The heart of the nation is no longer, and the rebuilding process begins. Despite the initial humiliation that the Jews experienced, the Babylonians quickly allowed the Jews to have upward mobility and a certain degree of autonomy and self-governance in Babylon. And Jewish life improves rapidly, and the nation settles into their new world. And the king, and the prophet Jeremiah tells them, you get to the land of, of Babylon, you're going to be there for a while. Settle down, build houses, build institutions, get comfortable there because the Jewish people are going to be there for a very long time. And Babylon becomes a home very quickly. Just like the Jews in America today, how long have we been here for in massive numbers? A hundred years or so? The first uh, major influx of Jewish immigrants is in the 1880s. It's relatively recently, but we consider ourselves to be Americans. We're, 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 We're comfortable here. And even though Israel is widely available for any Jew who wants to go move there, we very quickly get comfortable in our new home away from home. And the Jews are going to be in Babylon for a very long time. But Babylon is not going to be at the center of the world stage for that much longer. In a remarkably short period of time, the mighty empire of Babylon is going to be toppled and it's going to be taken over by invading hordes of Persians and Medes. And King Darius of Media and his son-in-law, King Cyrus of Persia, they're, they're going to join forces. They're going to capture all of Babylon, all of Babylonia. They're going to depose King Belshazzar, the last kingdom of the empire. And now what has been a Babylonian empire that controlled most of the world stage, it's going to be absorbed by the newfound Persian empire, 
which at its height numbered 127 nations stretching all the way from Afghanistan and India in the east to southern Ethiopia and the sub-Saharan continent uh, in the west. Now, there's going to be a new challenge here. The Babylonians, they were a little bit rough and the Jews didn't really find a lot of rapport with the Babylonians. The Jews were not tempted to assimilate in their masses when the Babylonians uh, arrived. However, we read in the first book, in, in, the, in the first chapter of the book of Esther, the Jews begin to partake in the banquet of the Persian monarch Ahasuerus. And it seems like that there's a new issue here, that now there is a new overlord, the Persians, that the Jewish people find that they have a certain affinity towards. And that's going to cause problems because the second the Jews begin to lose their character as a nation and begin to assimilate every single time in history that this has happened, a great pattern of Jewish history is when the Jewish people are on the verge of losing what makes them unique and special and they become acculturated and assimilated amongst their host nation, very quickly God injects hatred into the people, into the overlords, and thus the Jewish people are again pushed away and remain true to their people. And thus we read about the Purim story. There is a genocide that Haman wants to do. Haman quickly rises to the upper ranks of the Persian power structure. It's not enough for him to kill just Mordechai. He wants to unleash his hatred on Mordechai's people. Ahasuerus thinking is no problem. He says, I don't even need your money. Just do it for free. And we know the story. There is an unlikely heroine, Esther. She's a young woman of great modesty and piety. And she, out of the blue, is conscripted against her will to join a beauty pageant to become queen. She becomes queen. And in that capacity, she is able to save the nation. And this is another great example of salvation coming from unexpected sources. No one would imagine uh, just like in the times of Moshe, that Mo- that the leader who's going to save the Jewish people is going to grow up in the palace of Pharaoh, it seems so inappropriate. But that's indeed what happened. And here we see again uh, the salvation against the genocidal efforts of Haman uh, that came from the epicenter of that decree from the kingdom and the palace of Ahasuerus. After 70 years, the Jewish people have been living in Babylon. They settle down, and the Persian king Cyrus, he makes a declaration. And part of the declaration is that all the people can return to their homelands. And specifically, he tells the Jews, you can return to the land, you can rebuild the temple. He even sent a garrison of soldiers to be there and to, to protect the caravan of Jews traveling back to Israel to reestablish and to restore Jewish control of the land. The leader of this effort to go back is a fellow by the name of Zerubbabel. It was assumed, uh, because he was a descendant of King David, that if the monarchy would be restored, he would be king. Cyrus also gave, gave them various vessels of the temple, troops to protect them. But sadly, only a few thousand Jews joined this mission. And it's interesting, again, like this is the dream. The Jewish people were so sad when they lost the temple and they were crying on the rivers of Babel 
how how we're forgetting God, we're forgetting Jerusalem, we'll never forget it, we pledge, and now they have an opportunity on a silver platter to go back to Jerusalem, and they say, you know what, I kind of like it here. And most Jews opt to stay in Babylon. And this movement really sputters. The process of building the temple begins, but the Samaritans, uh, those people who were, have been there since Sancheirev displaced the Jews of the kingdom of, of, of Israel, they send a message to Cyrus alleging falsely that the Jews are, cons- are conspiring to rebel against them. But the building process uh, really takes off in earnest when in Babylon, the great leader of the people, a man by the name of Ezra, another individual who is as great as Moshe in his leadership of the people, he decides to organize a mission of roughly 40,000 people to go and support the fledgling Jewish community in Israel, in the land of Judah. The Jewish people, they were suffering not only physically, but they were also marginalized spiritually. We're told that there was intermarriage, things that were anathema to the Jews and have been anathema to the Jews from time immemorial. There's a wanton desecration of Shabbos. There's assimilation. What is going to be? Even the high priest had some of his sons marry non-Jews. And the Talmud tells us that like Moshe, Coming down to save the Jewish people when he sees the golden calf, Ezra, the religious leader, along with his ally and his friend and, 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 and helper, Nehemiah, the political leader, they go back and they organize this vast effort to rebuild the Jewish community in Israel. And of course, you can read about their exploits in the book, uh, books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So of course, they, they begin, they realize that there's actually a physical threat. So they build a wall surrounding Israel, surrounding Jerusalem, to allow the construction crews to start rebuilding the temple. And he gathers everyone in a very dramatic convention, and he tells all the Jewish men, you have an ultimatum. Either you divorce your non-Jewish wives, or you get them to convert. And he passes decrees to close all the loopholes, make sure that no one's working on Shabbos, and thus to ensure that the Jewish community in the land of Israel is going to be on solid ground. And finally, roughly the year 350 before the Common Era, the second temple, Temple 2.0, is coronated, is, is built, is inaugurated. And the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verse 12, describes that the people who were there, who had seen the grandeur of the first temple, when they see the pitiful existence of the second temple, it was smaller. It didn't have any of the miracles that were ever present in the first temple. They actually cried, not tears of joy, but tears of sadness when they saw the new temple 2.0. It didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. It didn't have the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It didn't have the menorah for various points. It didn't have the magical Urim Vitumim in the Kohen Gadol's breastplate. There weren't these miracles that uh, were everyday experiences in the first temple. The second temple was built in, almost entirely out of wood. It didn't have that same splendor and grandeur as the first temple. And that indeed shows that even though there is a temple nominally, but it's on a much lower level, both spiritually and physically, than the first temple. And that's not the only challenge facing the nation. This is the first time in Jewish history where the Jewish people are going to have to exist 
in two concurrent communities. You know, now we're used to it. The vast majority of Jews uh, live either in the United States or in Israel. And there's some Jews living in various places in Europe and really all across the world. Uh, but all we have known uh, since this point in history is Jews living in various places, in Europe, in North Africa, in the Middle East. To us, it's unusual the notion of Jews being consolidated all in one place, and we pray for it. We pray that the Almighty gathers in the, the exiles from the four corners of the earth back to one place, back to Israel. At that time, of the beginning of the Second Temple era, and the beginning of the Second Commonwealth, that is a brand new thing. And it's a trend that's going to accelerate. Jews are going to be living in far and far out places. So what's going to be? How are we going to ensure that we're going to be united as a nation? What's going to keep the Jewish people together when they're not actually together as a nation? Uh, that's number one. Number two, of course, like we said, the temple is no longer going to be the center of Jewish life. But most critically, this period marks the end of the prophets. The last of the prophets are living at the time, Zechariah, Malachi, Haggai, uh, and those people, well, they're the last direct line to God. And they're the last line of defense against various schisms amongst the nation. Because as, as long as you have a prophet who is in direct contact with God, then you have some sort of tangible show of unity and of Torah amongst the nation. Once the Jewish people become a non-profit organization, it's going to open the door for all kinds of splinter groups to flourish. And thus we have the arrival and the establishment of the assembly known as the Great Assembly, the Knesses Gedola, the Anche Knesses Gedola. It's 120 sages under the leadership of Ezra, and they're convened to ensure the survival of Judaism. And we look back at the remarkable foresight and the impact of these personalities and the decisions that they made, which really paved the way for a vibrant and flourishing Judaism that continues until this day. And they, again, were focused on the problem. How do we have Jewish, the Jewish life flourish and continue despite all these challenges that they're facing? And amongst the most important measures were to ensure the transmission of Torah over exile and over chaos. So what do they do? They canonize scripture, right? The Tanakh, the 24 books of Tanakh, what's included, what's not included? What is the finalized, canonized corpus of Jewish holy books? What's included and what is not included? What about prayer? The temple was the epicenter of Jewish prayer. Now, Jewish people are scattered they had to formulize a text of prayer that is going to be ubiquitously observed throughout all of the Jewish world. They were coordinating the Jewish calendar. They established educational systems in the land of Israel. And we see here a pattern emerge. Previously, we had prophets. Previously, we had kings. Now, there's going to be a shift. There's no longer a king. So there's no longer a monarch who's going to be at the helm of the nation. The prophets, this is the last hurrah for them. There's going to be a rise in the role of the Sanhedrin, beginning with the men of the Great Assembly and onward, and the role of the high priest to be the leaders of the nation. The fourth century before the Common Era saw the emergence of a new world empire, Greece. 
The Persians and the Medes, they had their control of the world stage for a while, but that did not last very long. And under the leadership of Alexander the Great, the Greeks began very quickly to conquer all the lands previously controlled by their arch enemies, the Persians. And what's really important to stress about Greek conquest is that it's not just about territorial acquisition, it's more, it's also about imparting the Greek ideology, the Greek philosophy known as Hellenism into the conquered people. So they wanted the people that they conquered to become Greekified, to become Hellenized, and to have a uniform culture and philosophy dominate their nation. And the problem with that is, is that the ideals of Hellenism are very much in conflict with the ideals of Judaism. Thus, even though the Greeks conquered Judea and Israel and Jerusalem without any blood, and we're very thankful to Alexander for that, in fact, after the year after Alexander conquered Jerusalem and Judea, all Jewish boys were named Alexander. In fact, Alexander and its variant sender are still Jewish names until today. But this is going to begin a rising conflict over the next several centuries between the Jews and their Greek overlords. Because the Jewish ideals, the ideals of Torah and the ideals of the Jewish tradition are very much not in line with Hellenism. And that's going to really erupt, not under Alexander, but under his successors. Now, Alexander, he has a remarkable tenure conquest of the almost essentially the entire known world, but he dies. He doesn't even even make it back. He dies actually in Babylon at the age of 32, and he has an enormous empire spanning the world over. And very quickly, it becomes apparent that he doesn't have a single successor who could, who could rule the entirety of his empire. And after his death, three of his generals, they each gain control of three different empires. In Greece, you have the Macedonian Greeks, in Egypt and North Africa, you have the Ptolemians. And finally, in Assyria and in the East, you're going to have the Seleucid Greek Empire. These, each one of them are their own flavor, but they share the Greek ideal of disseminating Hellenism. And if you know the map, you'll notice that Judea, Israel today, is going to be sandwiched between Assyria, between the Seleucids, and Egypt, the Ptolemians. Originally, the Jews are going to be controlled by the Ptolemians. And they were, you know, they did everything they can to try to integrate the Greek way of life amongst their conquered people. Uh, Greek language, Greek manners, Greek art, Greek culture, Greek architecture, Greek ideology. But they weren't so forceful in the implementation of that. However, that said, many Jews became Hellenized. Uh, primarily the wealthier class, the upper class, they embraced this ideology and became Hellenized Jews. But the vast majority of the people did not. Uh, during this era, you actually have a, another important development in Jewish history, and that is the writing of the Septuagint, the King Ptolemy. He had a very amazing library. He felt it was lacking a critical volume. There was no version of the Torah. So he contracted 70 sages, he isolated them from each other and forced each one of them 
to write a Greek translation of the Torah. Thus, we have the Septuagint, the translation of the 70s. In the year 198, Antiochus, who was the emperor, the the king of the Assyrian Greeks, of the Seleucids, he invaded Judah and he conquered the land from the Egyptian, from the Ptolemians. And they intensified their efforts of Hellenization. So you have a lot of different pieces here that's going to really erupt into a tinderbox and that's going to lead to the Hanukkah miracles and the Maccabean Hasmonean revolt. On one hand, you have a civil war brewing. You have some of the wealthy and respected Jews become Hellenized. And they are very much at odds with their co-religionists who are not Hellenized, the traditional Jews. And they do everything they can to try to promote Hellenism amongst the nation. And then you have another empire, the empire of the Assyrian Greeks, who are more than willing to help the Hellenized Jews in achieving their efforts of Hellenization of the entirety of Judah. And that really causes a major problem. So Antiochus III, he is replaced by his son, Antiochus IV, known to us as Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the Great, alternatively Antiochus God Manifest, and he begins a systematic effort to deconstruct and destroy the Jewish religion. And this is going to kick off the first religious war in history. He begins by meddling with internal Jewish affairs. He takes the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, a righteous one, Yehoshua. He replaces him with his Hellenized brother, Jason, who begins to institute all kinds of Greek idolatrous rituals in the temple. He's not happy with only that. He begins to make bans and decrees and edicts against Jewish practice. So all the laws that relate to regulating the Jewish calendar are banned on pain of death. Observance of Shabbos and all the holidays are banned on pain of death. Torah study, teaching Torah, circumcision becomes forbidden on pain of death. Women who allow their children, their sons to be to be circumcised, they have their children tied around the necks and chucked off cliffs. He begins to interfere with the practices in the temple. He has pig sacrificed in the temple. He installs an idol in the temple itself. And things really are very bleak for the nation. And the Jews don't tolerate it for that long. And finally, a revolt begins in the city of Modin. A Greek garrison stopped there and they tried to get a Jew to volunteer to sacrifice a pig to the idol. They finally found a Hellenized Jew willing to do that. The senior Kohen of the city, someone by the name of Matthias, Matthias, he, in a rage, he erupts, he pulls out a sword from it, from underneath his robe, he kills the traitor and turns his eyes on the Greeks. They're not ready for this. They're totally pummeled by the mob and thus begins the Maccabean revolt. It begins very small. It's a family that they have a, a rat-tag guerrilla army, but it expands very quickly. And they take on an army of tens of thousands, an army of trained generals and war elephants that are uh, experts in battle. And remarkably, uh, after – actually took a while – after 25 years of war, the Jewish people managed to quiet the land – 
to conquer it, to achieve sovereignty over the entirety of Judah. Of course, the pinnacle of the story, they go back to the temple that was defiled by the Greeks. They are looking and rummaging to try to find a, to find some oil to light the menorah. They find one vial of oil intended to last for only one day. It lasts for eight. By the time that it is extinguished, they have already traveled to the north of Israel to get more fresh oil and bring it back to Jerusalem. And this is considered really a triumph of uh, a religious and spiritual triumph where the Jewish people and their Torah won a war against their enemy. Historically, the Jews have been okay with foreign leaders, provided that they're allowed to maintain their freedom of religion and observance of Torah unmolested. But now they have everything. The Greeks are gone. They have the temple restored. And they have a family that really began and executed this whole miraculous war. And they begin a new dynasty called the Hasmonean dynasty. But sadly, this dynasty has a tragic story to it. It begins with tremendous hope. It begins with the last of the five sons of Matthias. His name is Shimon. He becomes the Nasi. Now, if you remember earlier, we mentioned to be a king of Israel, you have to be a direct descendant of King David. This family, they're obviously not descendants of King David because they are Kohanim. They're from the tribe of Levi, now from the tribe of Judah. And therefore, Shimon himself, he doesn't call himself king. He calls himself a Nasi, the, prin- the prince or the president. But his kids, they don't care about that. And sadly, the Hellenists themselves, uh, who were the main enemy, really, of the people that led to the disaster of Antiochus and the Greeks, they themselves didn't disappear. They rebranded themselves as Sadducees. It was not viable at the time to call yourself a Hellenist, but those people didn't didn't change. They didn't disappear. They started calling themselves Sadducees. And sadly, the family that went out of its way to battle and to wage war against the Hellenists, their descendants, they themselves partnered and became Sadducees and Hellenists reborn, which is really sad. In fact, there's an episode of one of the kings of the Hasmoneans, a descendant of these great leaders of Matthias and Shimon and, and, and Judah Maccabee. His name was Alexander Yana. He was the king of Israel, but he was a Sadducee. And he would deliberately try to sabotage various aspects of the temple and its observance. So there's a very famous story on the holiday of Sukkos, where traditionally there was a water libation that was done. And he, in front of the masses of Israel, he deliberately mocked this ritual by pouring the water on his feet instead of on the temple altar. And the masses were fed up with this horrific, uh, sacrilegious display of hatred of this king. They took their esrogim, their citron fruits from the holiday, and started pelting this king. And they almost killed him. But he responded by ordering his mercenaries to go massacre the Jews by the thousands. This is indeed a tragic story a family that brought so much good to our nation, but sadly descended into Hellenism and Sadduceeism, and indeed don't have a bright legacy 
to show for their efforts. After about 100 years, there was a debate between the two heirs to the Hasmonean throne, Hierarchinus and Aristobulus, and they decide to reach out to the ascendant Roman Empire and have them adjudicate and mediate this dispute. And Pompey is invited to arbitrate between uh, between this disagreement, and he decides to seize power and control over Judah. He appoints Hierarchinus as a puppet leader. The Romans always prefer to rule by proxy. Uh, Several years later, Pompey himself is defeated by his arch-rival Julius Caesar, and he appoints a proxy Antipater as the king uh, or as the leader of Judah. And his son, whose name is Herod, he makes him the governor of the Galilee, of the northern part of the land. Now, Antipater himself wasn't really Jewish. He was part of the Idumeans who were forcibly proselytized by the Hasmoneans. And uh, eventually his son, who was an absolute violent madman and a maniac and a murderer, he is appointed in the year 37 for the Common Era as the king of Judah. And he has a, has a violent streak that was really not seen before in our nation. Uh, he murders the Kohen Gadol. He goes on an assassination campaign to kill scores of rabbis. He wanted to bolster his own claim to the throne by marrying the last of the daughters of the Hasmoneans, Miriam. But he gets fed up with her and he murders her and their children. He is basically the Jewish Stalin. But he's also a great builder. He undertakes a 19-year campaign to rebuild and refurbish the temple. And he builds uh, the Fortress of Masada. He builds uh, Caesarea. He expands greatly the plateau upon which the temple is placed, the Temple Mount. And in fact, the western wall is the wall that Herod built, the western part of the plateau, the retaining wall to hold up the expanded Temple Mount. When he dies, he's replaced by his son and his grandson, and they are just models of ineptitude. And very soon afterwards, the the Romans take over direct rule of the land. Now, at the time, things are really chaotic for the Jews. Says the Talmud, the second temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam, of senseless hatred from one Jew to another Jew. And in this last century before the temple is destroyed in the year 70, there is so many different groups vying for leadership and vying for the attention of the nation. There's all these various factions and various sect- sectarianistic splinter groups. The Talmud, in fact, mentions that there's 24 different groups of people, each one of them vying to be the people who represent the nation. And thus, the Jewish people themselves are not united. When we're not united, then we are very vulnerable, uh, not only from within, but also from without. So for some of these famous groups, one of them, of course, is the Pharisees. You have the Sadducees. You have a group called the Essenes, which are essentially religious fanatics, uh, most likely the people who lived in caves in the southern part of Israel, to whom we could credit the Dead Sea Scrolls. You have Hellenized Jews. You have a new group called the Jewish Christians who are Jews who believe that a uh, a hero of theirs was the Messiah. 
it takes a while for this group to break off and become its own religion. You have the Zealots. Uh, they are a very nationalistic people who are incensed with the idea that these paganistic Romans are coming here and defiling the land. You have a group called the Sicari. Sicari is actually a word that means a very small dagger. Basically, they were ruffians. They, they were just a group of assassins who would kill their political opponents. You have Bryonim, a group of organized criminals. And you have even Jews who descended into paganism. And because there's such a motley mix of people in the land, there's an uptick in crime. And the Talmud tells us that 40 years before the temple is destroyed, so according to most, uh, that would be the year 30, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the nation, they voluntarily abdicate their position in the, in the temple and they move out to a place called Chanut. And the reason for this is, it's interesting, because they had to be in the marble chamber, in the temple, in order for Jewish law to be adjudicated throughout the land. Thus, for Jewish law to be practiced anywhere in the world, you have to have the Sanhedrin in the temple. Thus, when they leave and they exit the temple grounds and they move to Chanut, every other Jewish court is handcuffed they can no longer adjudicate uh, capital punishment. And the reason why they did that is because Jewish law is supposed to, is supposed to be that Jewish law is, uh, is very rare that capital punishment is actually meted out. But because they, of the nature of the people and the, the times, the Jewish, the Jewish court being way too busy. And the role of the Sanhedrin, the role of the court is to be the last resort of ensuring that Jewish law is obeyed. If it becomes a first resort, then they voluntarily withdraw. We're going to allow the Romans to have their say in determining what happens to criminals. And the Romans intensify the persecution of, of the Jews. They add various, uh, various forms of taxes. They strip the Jewish people of their citizenship. They erect statues in various cities in the land to incite the nation, to incite the Jews. They have a string of really bad and incompetent leaders known as prefects and procurators. Uh, some of them, of course, we know their names. Uh, Felix, Pontius Pilate, uh, Floris, uh, Agrippa, who was the last good one. But the Great Revolt in the year 66 was provoked by the Roman procurator Floris, and he wanted to cover up for his own ineptitude and thus to uh, cloud uh, the ability for any outsider to judge his misconduct, he leaves the city of Caesarea and he leaves the Jews without any protection and pagans slaughter thousands of Jews. And that was the spark that kicked off a massive revolt known as the Great Revolt that lasted from the year 66 until essentially the year 73, even though primarily it ended in the year 70. Riots break out in many cities. The protests were viciously and violently squelched out by the Roman garrison in the land. Many Jews are killed. Many synagogues are destroyed. The rabbis and the majority of Jews don't want to wage war with the most efficient military empire that the world has ever seen with the Romans. The Romans are very brutal. They have a take-no-prisoners approach. But some Jews succeed in driving the Romans out of Jerusalem. It's a very big deal. And a revolt spreads throughout the land. And this is 
during the height of what's known as Pax Romana, the height of the Roman Empire, where they really have quiet across a huge empire. But the Jews are revolting nonetheless. Vespasian, who is the general, he leads a group of 40,000 soldiers, and they begin to systematically, beginning in the north, in Syria, make their way south and conquer Judea back from the from those who are rebelling. Many cities did not want to pick fights with the Romans. They opened their doors and they were spared. In the northern city, in the northern uh, part of Israel, in the Galilee, uh, there was someone by the name of Josephus who was in charge of defending the Galilee. He surrenders to the Romans and he eventually becomes a member of the royal family and he actually chronic he travels with the Romans and chronicles this great war. Other towns, other cities, they make the mistake of battling the Romans, and the Romans slaughtered and raped and pillaged with absolute brutality. They take thousands of slaves and march them back to Rome. Others are publicly executed. Others are fed to the lions for sport. And when the Romans destroy a city, they burn down all the houses, they cut down all the trees, they rub salt into the ground so nothing would grow. It's a total decimation. And they finally make their way down south to Jerusalem and besiege the city. Now, the city of Jerusalem is actually very defendable. It has very strong walls. It's also surrounded, it's surrounded by valleys, so it's eminently defendable. Moreover, the Talmud tells us that there were very rich people in the city who had acquired great vast amounts of supplies in the form of grain and wood to really keep the Jewish people going for 21 years. But unfortunately, sadly, there was just like there was an enemy outside the walls of Jerusalem, there was internally a civil war brewing. There's all these thugs who really wanted to break out of the city and go battle the Romans. They believed, some of them for nationalistic reasons, some of them just wanted to fight. They believed that they could win. But they were worried that the people inside, they're too complacent. They got their food, they got their shelter, they're surrounded by these massive walls. And therefore, in a way to ensure that the Jewish people will have to go out and battle the Romans, they deliberately sabotaged these supplies and they burnt down the warehouses. And as a result, sadly, there is mass starvation in the city. And the Jews, some of them break out of the city and furrow out to try to forage for food. Anyone who's caught escaping is crucified. At the height, you have the Romans crucifying 500 escapees every day in the city uh, horrific things are happening. There's people dying of starvation. There's parents consuming the flesh of their own children. It's really sad. The Talmud tells us uh, that in the city was the venerated sage Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and he wanted to make peace and to offer terms to the Romans, but they wouldn't let him leave. He actually faked his own death, meets Vespasian, and manages to ensure that the city of Yavne, the city that housed all the great rabbis, would be spared. Rabbi Yochanan was already thinking to the next day, what's going to be after Jerusalem is destroyed? 
will the Jews have a fighter's chance to rebuild their nation that's going to be in tatters? Eventually, the walls of Jerusalem are breached. House-to-house fighting ensues. Ultimately, the temple is again set ablaze on the ninth day of Av. Josephus describes heaps of corpses in Jerusalem, Jews jumping into the fire, let us die and be destroyed with a temple. We know from the history records that there were so many slaves that the Romans had taken that actually uh, the, the market was flooded and the price of a slave was actually reduced to that of a horse. Vespasian himself, he went back to Rome to become the emperor. His son Titus took over. And in fact, until this day, you could see in the form of Rome, the Arch of Titus that was erected in memory of this defeat of the Jews and this destruction of the temple. And there's a very famous image of them carrying what may or may not be the menorah as loot with many of the Jews traveling to them as as slaves. The Romans, uh, they have a triumphant victory. They minted coins with pictures of a weeping woman. Uh, On it, it says Judea capta. Judea was captured. They make Jews pay a punitive tax to pay for the temple of the pagan god Jupiter. And from then on, the Jews in Jerusalem are going to be controlled by Roman rule. The Sadducees are gone. The Essenes are gone. All these other splinter sects are gone. The rabbis are going to assume the mantle of absolute authority over the nation. But sadly, Jerusalem is no longer a Jewish city. Over the course of these 1,300 years, there were many high points, but sadly, there were many low points. And it's going to be roughly 2,000 years before the Jewish people are going to get back to the land of Israel to hopefully reestablish what's going to be an eternal sovereignty over the land. Uh, next week, we will continue in part three of Five Millennia of Jewish History to discuss the aftermath of the horrific tragedy that resulted at the end of the Great Revolt and what's going to be, who is going to be there when all things are lost, when the nation is in the depths of despair, how are they going to rebuild the nation to make sure that it's going to have a measure of continuity and it's going to once again flourish anew.